Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In secular ideology, we tend to depict everything as a struggle between bad actors and so-called good actors, between victims and oppressors. Thankfully, this self-righteous view of the world is dismantled in the Bible, which assumes that all humans are bad actors. In Scripture, all peoples come face to face with God's wrath through a functional judgment that pivots constantly against anyone who will listen. This mechanism is on full display in Matthew, who not only presents Israel's oppressor in a positive light, but as a people enslaved on Israel's account, and without whom Israel can't be saved. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 233 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We talk often, Richard, about the word function, and today will be no exception. We mentioned within the context of the genealogy that the name Joseph was functional, meaning although there is a character who is a different individual, Joseph the husband of Mary, the fact that the name Joseph appeared in the context of an Abrahamic and Davidic genealogy also made the name Joseph from Genesis functional in Matthew. And in the genealogy, this had a specific use. And now here again, we see the name Joseph, like the word dream. We see these words making the story of Genesis once again functional, but in a more specific way here in Matthew chapter 2. In literature, you find different features and different symbols and different images and different words, and the way that they kind of cluster here and cluster there will give you the matrix that you can understand things from. So when you hear Joseph, you think, aha, yeah, Joseph. But then you hear about a dream, and then you hear about Egypt. Once you know that the author is evoking all of these different things at the same time, you can't but think, well, obviously the author knew about these famous stories from Genesis, and he can't be doing anything but trying to evoke this story. So these elements are all important for us, not because we need to be able to trace you know, what path Joseph took through the course of his life. It's because we need to know that this is evoking an earlier story. Don't forget, we just made a big deal over the past couple episodes about how Joseph is not mentioned. When the wise men went and saw Jesus, they talked about seeing Jesus's mother, but didn't mention this guy that she happened to be married to. Oftentimes when we think of Joseph in this story, we think of the creche and Joseph gently putting his hand on the back of his wife, Mary, with the cute baby in her arms, yada, 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 because we have to come up with some kind of story to fit him in. But we are forcing him into a scene where Matthew did not put him. 
Matthew put him in a very specific spot after that story. And it's not just Joseph, but it's the Joseph who saw dreams, who went to Egypt. And this must evoke the Joseph from Genesis 37, Joseph the dreamer. Now, Jesus is the Lord's anointed in the story. And in one sense, he was sent to liberate the people from the tyranny of Herod. But very much in the spirit of Romans, we're never talking about one group of people. It's always about the Torah over not only the Jews, but the Gentiles. So Jesus is liberating the people from Herod. He's liberating them from Caesar. He has brought the kings of the nations to their knees in Zion. Remember, it's Zion and Bethlehem, which is a literary trick because Matthew is showing you that wherever Jesus goes, that's where the Mount Zion is, so to speak, kind of like Ezekiel's chariot. Herod's in Jerusalem, not Jesus. Correct. But now Jesus is going to go to Egypt. Now it's easy for us to think about this as a negative showdown with Egypt, but we have to remember something that you pointed out maybe a year ago on the show, Richard, that in Genesis, Joseph defrauded the Egyptian people and then enslaved them to Pharaoh, which means now Jesus has to go to Egypt to liberate the people of Egypt from the tyranny of yet another human king. You would never understand that context if you didn't go back first and read Genesis carefully. And it puts a different twist on Exodus also once you understand that the first injustice was not committed by Pharaoh. It was committed by Joseph, who gave Pharaoh and the people of Egypt a reason to fear the people of Israel. Just to refresh people's memory, what happened is once Joseph brought his family down to Egypt and they lived in Goshen and there was a famine and Joseph had been very careful to set aside food for Pharaoh and they had these huge stores of food to sell. The famine didn't just hit Judah, the famine also hit Egypt. So the Egyptians were without food. And he said, okay, sell me your horses, sell me your cows, and I'll give you money. And then the money ran out. Okay, give me your land. And then the money ran out. And so the Egyptian people had nothing left because they sold it all to Joseph, who sold it to Pharaoh on his behalf, so that Pharaoh owned one-fifth of everything from the people and enslaved the Egyptians first, while the Israelites, the sons of Israel, were free shepherds in the land of Goshen. What Joseph did is not 100% good, and you can already sense it because when he calls his father down, he says, come and see my glory that's in Egypt. Glory, when a human being claims it, is generally a problem in the Bible, and Egypt is generally a problem in the Bible. Very little good happens in Egypt. Just read Ezekiel and you'll see how bad it can be in Egypt. So at this point then, we have Joseph who goes down to Egypt. But like you said, Father, Joseph going down to Egypt is not, oh, poor Joseph. There's also the legacy of the former Joseph that was not entirely positive. And of course, for the Israelites, was clearly not positive. So there's work that needs to be done in Egypt. Matthew doesn't go into the details about that work, but there is a reason why the second Joseph has to go down. So I don't know who invented the undo button, whether it was Xerox or Apple or Microsoft. We'll never know. Maybe someone knows, but I don't know. And I'm not going to look it up after this episode. But I will say this. Before you had an undo button in any piece of modern technology, Matthew invented the undo button right here. 
He is undoing all the damage done by the kingdoms of men. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Here we have all the elements that we mentioned. We have the dream appearing to Joseph saying to go to Egypt to save the child and his mother. And this reminds us of the dream that Joseph got, which ended up bringing Joseph to Egypt and saving Joseph's father and his brothers from the famine that was coming to Judah. So the Lord sends them down to Egypt in order to save them as a family, save them as a clan, save them as a tribe. And then we have Herod who changes allegiances, which is what we saw in Egypt also over the course of Genesis and in the beginning of Exodus, where Pharaoh loved Joseph and believed in his glory. But then once there was a new Pharaoh who didn't know him, had no respect for Joseph's family and Joseph's tribe. We see this turning of the earthly authority. Matthew is using these tropes, these themes, these ideas from Genesis and Exodus. So when we talk about, a lot of times people think simplistically about how the Old Testament foreshadows the New Testament as if it were a predictive fortune cookie. But instead what is happening is that the authors of the New Testament are taking these ideas from the Old Testament and continuing the story on. The story continues on because the author of Matthew is using the same themes and the same ideas and even the same, if not characters, the same names of characters to evoke earlier characters. It all is coming to a head now in the Gospels. It's funny, you mentioned this transition at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus where there's a new king and suddenly he doesn't know Joseph and his family and so forth. Because that's what happens all the time when you have a change in leadership. Somebody who was ingratiated to one leader is now on the outs with the new leader and so forth and so on. But it also points to this deeper proposition of scripture that you shouldn't put your trust in Pharaoh because Pharaoh is temporary. Pharaoh's legacy is temporary. Everything he does is temporary. If you really want to find life, you should put your trust in that which does not die, which is the Lord's instruction. You put your faith in the seed that produces life for every generation. This was Joseph's mistake. But now we have the Lord Jesus Christ bringing the seed of his father's instruction to the land of Egypt once and for all time so that the seed could be sown again and again and again every generation every time the gospel is read to the Egyptians. And just one more side note, readers should note that he does not say, take your son. He says, take the child and his mother. So again, the author is making another point that this is not the son of Joseph. Even adoptively, it would be okay to call his son, but he doesn't call his son. The author makes it very clear. This is the child and his mother. If Jesus is the child of Joseph, then he's going to go to Egypt and steal the land from the Egyptians again and deepen their enslavement to their own king. The purpose of the Lord's instruction is to liberate not only Israel, but all the nations from the tyranny of their own rulers. And it's not a political liberation. 
Scripture is not interested in any of that. It's a liberation in the minds of its addressees so that they could have hope despite the oppression and the disenfranchisement they experience within their political setting. Because you have every reason to hope. Why? As we've said many times, I'll say it again. Because you will die and the person who is oppressing you will die but the Lord's word will never die and it will produce life in the future. And guess what? It will outlive all of these rulers, which is our best hope for the common good. This is exactly the point that the author here is trying to make. The first Joseph was the son of Israel. The current Joseph is along that line, but his son is not a son of Israel. His son is a child of God. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. This is the second time in this section of chapter 2 that he says the child. So you have to think of this as poetry hitting the ear. The child, the child, the child, the child. Emphasizing the point you made just a moment ago. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is a verse that my dad, as an Egyptian, would often share with us as children. Egyptian Christians are very proud of this verse in the text for obvious reasons. In the past, we've talked about this quote from Hosea. I remember one conversation that we had with Dr. Mary Yusuf about modern Arabic literature, and we talked about the way in which the biblical narrative uses opposites in order to give instruction to the addressee. So it confronts the Jew with the Gentile. It confronts male with female. It confronts here the people of Israel with the nation they perceive as their arch enemy, the people of Egypt. And it presents Egypt in Hosea as a positive function. It's beautiful. It's classic scripture. And Hosea has so much to say about Egypt. Hosea makes this beautiful tie between Egypt and Assyria, which is counterintuitive because they're obviously two entirely different places. The book of Hosea is making the point that Egypt is a state, not a state as in a country, but a state as in a state of being. Because Egypt is enslavement. Egypt is slavery. So whatever country you're in, when you're enslaved, you're in Egypt. Throughout the book of Hosea, Israel is a daughter or a wife to God. But in this particular passage in Hosea, where this verse comes from, Israel becomes the son. And it's not just that he brings his child out of Egypt. He calls him from Egypt, but then he teaches him how to walk and he holds his hands. And it's this very tender moment of fatherhood and childhood. He's raising him to be his child, but then the child betrays him. So in Hosea, he calls him out of Egypt, but he's talking about the Exodus, meaning the Exodus from the book of Exodus. But then because Egypt is a state of being, anytime that God calls us out of slavery, it is out of Egypt that we're being called. And so to begin this new Israel, you have to begin with an Exodus. And this is a literary Exodus where they go to Egypt, but really it's because he's going to bring the people out of slavery from under Pharaoh slash Caesar slash king slash president slash congress whatever to the freedom that only comes from the teaching that god provides this creation or metamorphosis of israel becoming the son of god and this is not just 
an earthly Egypt with a certain boundary around it on the earth, but is a state of slavery. This is what God is doing, is God is taking the people out of the slavery, and this fits in with the name of Jesus, which is he will save, and it brings all these themes together. So rather than Joseph going down to Egypt the first time and God having to save them that way, Jesus comes down and he brings out his son, and it's a new birth of the people from slavery into becoming a people. To the extent that Jesus functions correctly in submission to his father as a slave, which is what Israel was called to do. Israel was called out of Egypt to become the slave of God in the wilderness, not to become free the way that the Exodus narrative was co-opted in the civil rights movement. It's not that I don't fully embrace and even appreciate the biblical metaphors used in the civil rights movement. We just have to be factual and say, look, it's not the same kind of freedom. And that might be why the civil rights movement has lost its energy in our era, has lost its focus, because it's lost its grounding in scripture. Israel was brought out of Egypt to become the slave of a different master. And to the extent that Joseph enslaved the people of Egypt to the old master in order to ingratiate himself to gain worldly favor and affluence, Jesus has to go now and enslave the people of Egypt to the new master. It feels in Matthew, just on the level of narrative, that you had a gathering of the nations on Zion to behold the nativity of Christ in the arms of Mary, but Egypt was missing. And we have to go undo another wrong, another liberation unto bondage to the Torah needs to take place. Thank you for specifying that. When I say that Egypt represents slavery, I mean slavery to an earthly king, a pharaoh, a king, a Caesar. The best true freedom is slavery to God, to his word. The rulers who came, the magi who came to worship Jesus, they came from the east. I think you're absolutely right, Father. Egypt was missing. And so Egypt as well needs to be liberated from their Pharaoh, from their ruler, from their Caesar, just as anyone needs to, in order to be enslaved to the correct master, to the best master, the one who created the heavens of the earth and the one who gave us Torah. And this is the genius of Paul's teaching. He, on the one hand, and we've said this many times, criticizes the archi at the top of the hierarchy. He criticizes Pharaoh. He criticizes Caesar. He criticizes the paterfamilias. But at the same time, he co-opts the authority of that figure in order to enslave those subject to the hierarchy to the scriptural teaching. It's beautiful. It's a way of rebelling against tyranny without actually rebelling physically because you rebel in your submission because you're choosing to submit to a different master. So in a way, Israel can't be free unless it goes back to Egypt to become enslaved. There's no freedom for Israel without freedom for Egypt. And the freedom that both enjoy is just a new slavery to the instruction that makes them brothers and sisters. That's scripture. That's why table fellowship is so important in Acts and in Paul's letters. Because at the end of the day, this whole business boils down to, and I'm not oversimplifying scripture, I'm talking about the fruit of the teaching. The fruit of the teaching, Paul teaches us, is love. 
which in a way means that everything boils down to this basic example of a cup of tea. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to Egypt so that sons of Egypt and sons of Israel can sit together and have a cup of tea. It's really that mundane. But it's not mundane if you understand the way human relationships go. It's not mundane when you look at the state of the world today. Because anyone with any sense of conscience would ask, why can't we just sit down with each other and break bread? Well, my dear friends, that is the whole question in Scripture. Why can't you sit down with each other and just break bread? Well, Scripture is clear about why that is. Because you serve your master and your king, and they serve their master and their king, and those two kings just aren't compatible, and so you're going to struggle over whatever you're going to struggle about. But if you both were to serve the same master, the one master who created the heavens and the earth, who gave us Torah, then it would be very easy to sit down together. So you serve your king, you love your king, you love your pharaoh, you love your slavery more than the freedom that enslavement to God and Torah would provide you. I'll give you a simple example of how this works in a very practical way in everyday life in the United States. There are so many issues that put us at odds with each other. And this is being amplified right now by the demon of ideology that has taken control of our national discourse, Richard. But at the end of the day, even now, with ideology gaining so much power in the United States, even now, when we go to the grocery store, when we drive on the street, when we see each other in public places, we get along. And that's because we're under the control of the law. There are limits on behavior that prevent us from causing injury to each other, even when we disagree about something, whatever that issue is. The law puts limits on behavior. It limits our freedom. It controls us. We are, in effect, a slave to the Constitution of the United States. But that slavery creates the possibility of community. It creates the possibility of freedom and openness. That's what slavery to the Torah means. You are, in fact, a slave to God's instruction. It does, in fact, control or limit your behaviors. But in doing so, it makes it possible for you to enjoy the friendly company of an Egyptian. Even if you still hate him, it doesn't matter. You are not allowed to hate him because he's your neighbor. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Have a great week. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.